Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for hitting play on this episode of the podcast where we discover Malta. Now, it may be small, Phil, but it punches well above its weight. Yeah, sure does. It's home to 10 UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And, of course, the entire country was awarded the George Cross for heroism and the devotion of its people during the Second World War. It's made up of three islands, Malta, the main island, Gozo and Camino. And for a nomad, it's a popular destination. It's got beautiful beaches and a mix of rolling fields, white cliffs and uh, desert locations, landscapes as well. There are also endless vineyards and the food is pretty great too. Well, you've sold me. Yeah. I think we'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> Joining us next week, yeah. Yeah. No, while we'll explore some of those things that you've mentioned in more detail with our guests, we also speak to a woman who photographs whales and dolphins, etc. but she's super scared of the water, super scared. Let's. Uh, that's later on, but let's get into it with David Hoffman, a travel host and producer. Now, he will tell us about David's Been Here, in which he hands out plenty of travel inspiration and advice, but I think he's our first ever guest to kick off his own interview. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. <laughs> awesome. Now, listen, you're called David. Here in Australia, anyone with the name David is known as Dave. Now, everyone Dave, wants, okay. yep, everyone wants a mate who's a Dave. Dave's the one that you can call to come and help you put a new fridge in. Nail a couple of, um, you know, <laughs> nails into a fence post. There's always a Dave. Are, are you a okay. Dave? He's good for a beer and, you know, yeah. a shoulder to cry on. Dave, is is this you? Oh, he's got a beer. <laughs> he has got a beer, has he? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, oh, I have kids. I'm taking the edge off right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a very, very, very quick story. I used to work with a guy named David and he was known as Dave on a breakfast radio show. And he came across a stat in Australia that uh, parents weren't naming their kids David anymore. So there was going to be a whole generation where there were no Davids. And we couldn't, oh Im- yeah, we couldn't imagine a world without Daves. You've got to have one. You've got to have a Dave. You've got to have a Dave. So we <laughs> gave away a kitchen. This was at their request. <laughs> we, we basically put a call out and a woman rang from the hospital maternity unit and said, look, I've had a baby. I don't know what to call it. Happy to call it David. What will you give me? <laughs> and oh, wow. we said, what do you want? And she said, new kitchen, consider it done. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. So the next generation of Davids is in safe hands here in Australia at least. So thanks for joining (laughs) us. (laughs) That's a good intro. It is. I reckon that's the best ever. That is the best. (laughs) Tell us about Davids being there. Okay, so yeah, so I... I'm David Hoffman from David's Been Here. I started the company uh, 11 years ago in college. Uh, basically, it was the beginning of YouTube and travel blogging and becoming nomadic and, you know, basically independent and being able to travel and make money online. Uh, that was, you know, 2008. And yeah, I started back then, went through a lot of hurdles. And now I'm back doing what I started doing, which was making videos on YouTube. And that's what I do full time. Uh, so videos on YouTube is is what I do for a living. I also do Instagram. I have a website. But my, my main purpose is to uh, inspire independent travel, show people that you can go anywhere now 
globally with technology we have nowadays with an iPhone and do anything and travel anywhere. You're not just a videographer. You were named by USA Today as one of the top 10 best travel videographers. So you know your stuff. And what sort of work are you capturing? Yeah, so, I mean, my thing is to capture culture, language, history, and food. I mean, the the main things I, I think shape you as a person when you travel you know, my, you know, I, I just don't want to go around and see cr- beautiful places. I want to really interact with people. So my, you know, what, what I think when you travel is that you should really interact with locals. So go somewhere, explore, be with people, you know, try their foods, drink their drinks, see their history, but really understand where, you know, what this culture is about and where they've been, like what they've gone through to get there. And that's where I think the history part is amazing. I love history. I'm a, you know, my family, my mom's family comes from a, a small Roman town in uh, Umbria, Italy. Uh, their house is actually next door to the Roman amphitheater. So I'm a big history buff. I really, I, I really enjoy learning about it, seeing, you know, what, what happened back then to make everything what it is today. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think it's, it's all about, you know, just globally becoming a, a, a global citizen in a way. Well, this episode is about Malta and Malta has a very rich history. Would that be one of the things or one of the reasons why you would visit that country? I love Malta, by the way. Uh, you know, it's funny because when you reached out to me, I was like, damn, I haven't been there in seven years. And it's such a small nation. It's one of the top 10 smallest nations in the world. But it's there's so much history so much, I, you know, there's so much to do. You can do easily two weeks and not explore the whole thing. You know, there's three islands. It's Malta, Gozo, and Comino. Uh, Malta is the big, you know, the, the mother ship in a way. Then you have Gozo, which is next door, which is more like agriculture, but at the same time, there's a lot of history there. They used to have the, the, the Azore window, which unfortunately fell apart like two years ago. And then there's Comino, which is like a beach uh, island in the middle of both. But uh, yeah, a lot of history, you know, the British were there for, I think, like 200 years before that is the Knights of St. John's. So a, a lot of history and it's right there in between Europe and Africa. So a big mix of cuisine as well between like Arabic and Italian Sicilian food. I mean, the food will blow your mind. You say you love connecting with people and talking to people. And I have been to Malta, but a long, long, long time ago, a lot more than seven right. years ago. But if you want to have a chat with somebody... Malta's a good place to go. They don't mind a chat, do they? <laughs> really? Oh, they love a chat. It's really easy to strike up a conversation with somebody in Malta. And even though they've got yeah. this sort of cross language that's, you know, Italian, Arabic, there's a lot of English? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the British were there. So, I mean, they're, they're all fluent. I think it's a second language for them. Oh, that's nice. So you, when you're having a, a, a feed, do you say a feed or something to eat? Sounds a little more polite, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> or something to drink. If you're travelling on your own, it's not hard to strike up uh, friendships. <laughs> what are you, you laughing you know, at? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing because it, your accents, it, it's oh. the same, same thing in Malta. It, in Malta, because it's, it's ex-Commonwealth, you know, it was British. So it does have, the, like, they, they speak British but with a little bit of a dialect in a way. It's really nice. Do you, so do you find the Australian accent, because Phil and I struggle sometimes with the podcast, uh, with pronunciations, right. not because we are uneducated. Uh, yeah, uneducated. <laughs> yes. It's but just. it's just that as Australians we just can't seem 
It's all those hard vowels that you get in in Australian language. Yeah. We just sound like something from another country, literally. (laughs) I'm I'm from Miami and this is a whole different ballpark. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it is. As an example, in an earlier podcast I said the Champs-Élysées. But that's all the kind of how much Champ in your Élysées do you need? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Champ de lycée. It just well, doesn't the, come natural to us. Well, there's some of those words which are, you know, like a shibboleth. See, I'm showing off my education here. Uh, there's a road in my suburb which is called Beecham Road, but of course it's spelt Beauchamp. Yeah, right. But it's pronounced Beecham. So one of those sort of things. I'm not a total ignoramus. <laughs> He's out to impress you, David. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell me more about Malta and and this idea that uh, what you capture supports the independent and adventurous traveller, which is what World Nomads is all about. Okay, yeah. I mean, it, it, look, as an individual, like an independent traveller, it's just something that you have to think, you know, like what can I do? How do I get around? You know, especially doing it on your own without tours. And Malta is very easy. I mean, everything is a you know 30-minute drive. Nothing's farther than that. You can stay in Valletta, which is the main capital of the country. And from there, you can go either to Marshers Lock, which is like a beautiful, or it's a beautiful fishing village. Um, from there, you can also go to the Blue Grotto, which is right next door. You can take a you know, boat ride into there. It's a huge cave in the water. Um, you know, there's, a, there's the Hypogeum, which is uh, 50, 600 years old, which is one of the oldest necropolises in the world. That's another like marvel on its own. And then in terms of like food, like I said before, it's a huge mix. You know, I'm, you know, I'm half Italian, so I love Italian food, but the mix with the Arabic spices, it's so different. It's just, it's so unique in terms of how they mix, you know, like rabbit and, you know, seafood as well with risotto. Um, And then, you know, again, like getting around is is something that I always look at, you know, how how far is everything? Do I really want to drive three hours to go on a day trip? No, this is a place where you can go to a beach half an hour away, be there two hours and then go somewhere else and be in a historical city like uh, Medina, which is the like the historical capital, which was like, I think it's like 4,000 years old in itself. And that place, I mean, it's, it's I stayed in a boutique hotel there, but it's so beautiful and it's like very old streets, lots of little cafes, there's bars as well. So I feel like, you know, uh, I guess a millennial, I don't know, 20 to 40 year old, and you want to go and like party at night. It's another place you can go and, and step out of the, of the main, you know, tourist attractions, which is like, you know, I guess more tourist central. This is more like locals. Which, which of the three islands was your favorite? Uh, <laughs> so my, my mother's from this place called Gubbio and it's more like a, it's more like a town. So I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a city guy cause I'm from Miami. I love the high pace stuff, but I like Gozo because it's more chill. Gozo, the, the second main island is very relaxed. It's half the size of Malta. So, I mean, like I said, everything was 30 minutes over there. Everything's 15 minutes over here. (laughs) You have, yeah, I mean, tiny, everything's a village, but like you can go to a farm, stay on a farm in like one of these bed and breakfasts. They have, you know, plum wine. They have like these, these grappa wines. Um, They have like salt, uh, like on the water, like some old Roman, like uh, salt mines here. You have Victoria, which is the capital, which is now named Rabat, which also is a mix of Baroque and also like, 
what's it called? Uh, like St. John's, like when, when these, these guys conquered the Island back in the 16th century. So, I mean, I, I like it there. It's more calm. Malta is more like, you know, everybody's in Malta. Everybody go to Malta and go for three days. This is more, if you have some more time, like I come here with kids, you know? Well, you've created a, a great picture and I'm glad that we've been able to take you on a trip down memory lane. And given that you found our <laughs> accents so funny, is there anything that you'd like to ask Phil and I about Australia? <laughs> you know, I, I've been to Australia only once and when I landed, I landed in Darwin. That's a hard entry into Australia, isn't it? Yeah, that is a hard entry. <laughs> I yeah. love Sydney, by the way. Not like you. it's one of my fa- the ferry system there is amazing. You're gonna have to come back. Yeah, I know. I know it's so far. It it takes me like thirty hours to get there. I, th- I think yeah. Kim's offering a bed there. As oh, well, no. like. <laughs> this is so, this, you guys are so Aussie. <laughs> Uh, Here for you anytime, Dave. Always a beer in my fridge. Uh, Thank you so much for chatting to us. I really enjoyed that chat, so uh, loved it. Still to come, find out, though, why Phil here (laughs) believes he can never drown. Yeah, no, not me. I'm not scared of the water. When I was born, I was born, what they say, with a veil on my face, Mm. so my... My face was in a bag. Some people say it should still be in a bag. bag. But but it was in a bag of skin, so it looks as though I was born with no facial features. Mm, Curious how that relates to Phil believing he can never drown (laughs) is in a later (laughs) chat with Rochelle about facing your fears. But right now, Stacey McKenna, she's written an article for us on how to go beyond Malta's capital of culture. I had sort of been obsessed with Malta for, I'd say, a decade before I went. That obsession really came from the language, from these really, really ancient sites that are scattered all throughout the archipelago. And so while I was interested in seeing Valletta, that wasn't what brought me there to begin with. Well, your first stop was a stay in the silent city. Is that an official name, Stacey, or is this something that that you've coined? No, this is sort of... uh, an official, unofficial name that it's, that it's earned itself, really because the minute dusk hits and most of the day trippers who do go to see the, the architecture and some of the sites in that area have left, the city just falls silent. It's so quiet and you can walk through these old walled alleyways and it's just, it's stunning and you get views of the of the island, probably, I, I believe it was of Valletta itself, actually. And But the city's quiet, and the only people that are really around are a handful of tourists in the evening, and then people who live in the city itself, in Medina itself, or in nearby Rabat. After the silent city, where did you go to? After that, I headed, well, I headed to Rabat, which is really just, like, a kilometer, two and a half kilometers away, depending on what part of the cities you're walking to. It was sort of the the slightly newer section to the walled city. And so you still have a lot of sites. Um, and they, I went over there. I really didn't know what I was going to see over there. I just started walking. And I wandered over and I saw a sign for St. Paul's Cathedral and the catacombs that wind underneath it. And so I headed in that direction. And that's, um, that's where I ended up. It was these amazing series of catacombs that um, were carved into the limestone of the island. And 
that part was, it was interesting, but I'd, I'd seen catacombs before. So what ended up really striking me there was that these had been originally built in the Roman era um, because bodies couldn't be buried within the city walls, but they had actually fallen, they fell out of use for a while, they became used again. And what really struck me was that most recently, they had served as air raid shelters during World War II. And it just struck me as this amazing example of the way old structures just over and over again have taken on new meaning and new use for people. All, really, I mean, with structures all over the world, but it's, it's apparent, it's really apparent in Malta. Walking, now I can't, I, as Australians, we are hopeless at pronunciations because of our <laughs> horrible flat vowels. Is it the Dingle Heritage Trail? I believe it's actually Dingley. Right. Yep. I knew I wouldn't, I knew I would not get it right. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's about a 40 minute bus ride out of Valletta. It, the whole trail winds roughly 12 kilometers along these, along the tops of the Dingley Cliffs. And they're these just stunning towering limestone cliffs over the sea. And so the whole time you pretty much have some degree of a view of the sea. And then you get the chance to come across a variety of sites along the way. Um, I, the place where I got off the bus basically dropped me off at this 17th century chapel and it was closed. I couldn't go in and it was, it was small. It was just like a small village chapel. So in and of itself, I, it wasn't super exciting to someone like me um, who wasn't, I wasn't really sure, like, that's not what I was there for. And so I kind of started wandering around and, and walked behind the chapel and I found this trail that cut down and sort of switched back down the, down the edge of this really steep hillside. And as I did that, I found caves. I still don't know for sure what the caves, what the caves were exactly, but as I started looking into it more, I found out that there are clay caves on that cliff band that people think were inhabited starting in the Middle Ages and all the way into like the 1800s. So did you stumble across these caves yourself? Yeah, yeah, I did. So I, I mean, there wasn't, there was just a trail. And so I just started walking down the trail and, um, and that's where I happened upon the caves. And like I said, they weren't marked, so I wasn't sure what I was looking at until I got back later and started sort of researching. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Now you mentioned the sea. You also did a blue grotto tour. So I was really hesitant to do it because it's one of those more, it's, it is one of the more touristy things people do on the island. And I was so glad that I did because it's one of the touristy things that there is to do that there's a reason people want to go do it. I, I had ended up, I had walked there from, um, from some of the older sites and I went down and it's this fisherman's dock, this old fishing dock. And you get onto the, onto one of these wooden boats that are just, I mean, they're painted turquoise with bright yellow and just beautiful, bright colors. And then we, was, there were about six of us, I think on the boat. And we just 
took off along um, along the coast toward the Blue Grotto. And basically it's this cavern in the limestone where, I mean, the, the depths of the cavern, they go about 85 feet into the rock. And as you go in, so we would take turns and one or a couple of boats at a time only could go into the caverns. And as you did, the light would slant in from this very low angle. And so there was hardly any light. And what, what there was seemed to turn the water different colors. It seemed like it was glowing. Um, and it was bright cobalt. In places, it was purple or green. Um, reading other people's accounts, people talk about it being pink sometimes, depending on the weather and the time of day. And I guess it's minerals in the rock that are causing that. And then I assume combined with the way that the light filters in at such a low angle. Well, you say it's a touristy thing to do, but you know, even if you're traveling as an adventurous and independent traveler in France, you get to Paris, you want to see the Eiffel Tower. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I said, it's, you know, some things draw people because they're really special. And I mean, I'm, I live in landlocked Colorado, so I don't get a lot of opportunities to see really beautiful coastlines. And this was one that it surpassed any expectations I could have had. So that was going to be my final question. Did Malta live up to your expectations? To be honest, Malta completely blew my expectations out of the water. Um, I, I had spent so much time building it up that I was almost nervous. And um, I, I can't wait for my next opportunity to go back. Thanks, Stacey. Okay, travel news now. Another popular tourist destination has been closed by the authorities, or it will be from January next. The Indonesian government is closing access to Komodo Island because of what it says is rampant smuggling of the island's famous lizards. You know those giant lizards? Yeah, good the Komodo luck. dragons. <laughs> Well, they, they reckon more than 40 of them have been smuggled off the island and they sell on the black market for over 30,000 US dollars each. What for as pets? Oh, I have no idea, but I imagine that, I mean, it's like that crazy stuff, you know, we found out with penguins and what have you. Yeah, yeah. People have, with ridiculous amounts of money decide, you know, they've got everything they need except a Komodo dragon. <laughs> or a penguin in their or swimming pool. Or a penguin pool. or in their swimming pool. Yeah. I don't get that. What? Anyway, the rest of the, only that island will be closed. The rest of the national park is still open. So I think, I don't know the details, but I think you can go, still go see uh, the Komodo dragons. Yeah. But not on that island. Shame. This is why we can't have nice things. Uh, the UK Post Office has done a study of the most affordable European beach destinations for summer. They priced a basket of items, including a bottle of beer or coffee, and a three-course evening meal for two with a bottle of wine, and they tested that in 20 European beach holiday resorts. I'll do that, job. Yeah, How not bad. The bill came to €45 Euros at Bulgaria's Sunny Beach, which was the cheapest, while over in Sorrento on the my beloved Amalfi Coast of Italy, <laughs> the same item totaled 166 euros. Whoa. Bulgaria, we should, you know, we should have a look at that destination. I'm, I haven't come across it. Well, for all of that, for 45 euros, it sounds like great value. Yeah, look, if there's anybody out there that knows about Bulgaria, wants to word us up on it, drop us a line at podcast at 
ads.com. Bit of a safety warning for everyone here. After a New Zealand uh, family holidaying in an Airbnb in Ireland, found a hidden camera in the living room. The father connecting to the Wi-Fi found a device called IP camera connected to the same network and he was able to hack into it and see himself and his family standing there. Look, that's not a bad tip when you check into rented accommodation. Check the devices connected to the Wi-Fi network and if there's something sus on it. That is a massively good tip. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, they moved out straight away and they're in an argument with a bloke about it, but, you know, they've got the evidence. There we are on your camera, mate. Yeah, that's not on. (laughs) How old were you when you got your wanderlust, Kim? I do remember this distinctly. It was when my grandmother went to New Zealand and she brought me back a tiki and also um, music, Maori music. And I, from that moment on, I wanted to to visit New Zealand. I've been three times since, so can't remember, but around 12. All right. And when did you start travelling on your own? What age? 20s. Yeah. How about this? Yeah. Eight years old. On your own? (laughs) In Russia. Police have helped a family recover their eight-year-old son who ran away from home, leaving a note behind saying he wanted to travel the world. Good on him. Good on him. (laughs) By the time they caught up with him, it was only a few hours later, but he'd taken three bus trips and he was wandering through the local city there and he was carrying his piggy bank, an encyclopedia and a banana. I love this boy. He's going to go far, isn't he? That is (laughs) such a great story. Scary for the parents, though, obviously. Totally. There he is. He's got his wanderlust already. (laughs) Rochelle McIntosh is a wildlife photographer, so she definitely has wanderlust. She takes photos also of whales and sea life, but the thing is, Phil, she's afraid of water, so she faces her fears every time she gets on a boat in the line of duty. We reached out to Rochelle after our podcast featuring Susan Spann, who's living in Japan, attempting to climb 100 mountains in a single year and writing a non-fiction book about facing your fears and pursuing dreams. I love shooting marine mammals and getting in the water with them when I can. The reality is I'm absolutely petrified of the water. And... (laughs) no matter the job! (laughs) (laughs) No matter what I do, um, I just... I just can't get over it. So the thing is I do try actively to face it and to different things to try to fix it. Um, I am actually next week starting another snorkeling course where I'll have (laughs) personal instruction to try to troubleshoot anything that I might be doing wrong. Um, But interestingly, it was probably a few days ago, I discovered this thing and it's called the mammalian mammalian dive reflex. And apparently, okay, so – I'm no scientist. I'm a yeah. creative person, so I may make this up entirely. Don't yeah. hold it against <laughs> me. Okay. Yeah, sure. But <laughs> one of the things is that when a human or any mammal puts their face in the water, there's a chemical reaction that happens where your body automatically will start to slow down its breathing and the heart rate stops. And this is what freedivers harness to get better at plunging deeper depths. Yeah. Um, and a lot of um, cognitive behavioural therapy um, for anxiety will kind of advocate that kind of process as well to kind of alleviate the anxiety. Now, in a very small percentage of people, like me, I'm in a special group, um, <laughs> that kind of mammalian dive reflex can spark an, an anxious reac- reaction as well as soon as it happens. So as soon as you put your face in, there's this underlying thing that makes you extra anxious. Yeah. And knowing that this is a chemical and biological thing, it's kind of made me feel a lot more free because it's not – 
me trying to work out, oh, my God, like there's something crazy psychologically wrong with me. This is a physical reaction. And now I feel empowered that I can probably try something to outsmart it. Does that make yeah. any sense? Oh, yeah. it totally yeah. makes yeah. sense. It's, not, it's yeah. not really your fault. No, it's, it's just it's, – It's you're it's, a mammal. Everyone's scared of jumping into deep water and sharks and, you know, all those things in water that can sting you and bite you. Mm. That doesn't worry you. Oh, no. What worries you? <laughs> the water, the actual water. Like water is the most powerful force on the planet. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? That was created by water. So basically once you get in that water, you have to surrender your entire control and and just know that there, there's just mysteries, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's just things in there. There's currents, and it's a very powerful thing. And yeah, no, not me. I'm not scared of the water, and that's kind of a psychological thing as well. Because when I was born, I was born what they say was a veil on my face. Mm. So I, my my face was in a bag. <laughs> Some people say it should still <laughs> be in a, bag, in a bag, but <laughs> but it was in a bag of skin. So it looks as though I was born with no facial features. And uh, according to you know old wives' tales, um, that means you'll never drown. If you keep that skin and put it in a jar, sailors will buy it from you as a good luck, good luck charm and I've things like that. I've never heard of this. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Insane. So That's this amazing. is amazing. I know. So I've always been told this story Have as you got a the child. Skin? No, 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 no. The midwife threw it in the fire. Yeah, apparently. in the fire. You should, I was well, born. born? Oh. <laughs> Tell us how you were born. <laughs> I, was, I was born in. My parents are English. I was born in England. Yeah. I was born in the front room of our house, as was the practice then. That you had your first child in hospital. And then because you knew how to do it, you'd have your second one at home. You're so my bro- home birth. So my brother was born in hospital and I was born in the front room via a midwife. <laughs> Sorry with, for with laughing. With no face. <laughs> with no Faceless. face. <laughs> and the fire was on and this skin yeah, was, I was thrown born, in I'm, I was born in the British winter in February. So God, explains so a, a lot. And having heard this story, you know, many, many, many times growing up, um, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prof- prophecy. Of course. I can't drown. Because I was born with a veil on my face, so I'm not frightened of the water. Let's try that after <laughs> after we've finished. <laughs> I'll see if I can drown in yeah. this glass of water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you you love uh, photographing all sorts of animals, yeah. But um, whales, dolphins, the things that are in the water, yeah. Um, how do you how do you do it then if you're so afraid? Well, if I'm on a boat, it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, and that's how I do most of it. But it's like once or twice a year that I'll do a trip to go and swim with them. Um, and that, look, it's it's not pretty. It's I'm not going to lie. Like it's I find it really hard and confronting and and I'll shake like like an idiot really, yeah. especially when I'm with my friends who are all very confident in the water and everybody who I go with, they're, they're close friends of mine and they, they know that this is a thing for me. Um, but and, and so they're kind of forgiving yeah. <laughs> and nurturing and stuff, but it's just something that never, ever gets easier. It just And does it take away from the experience? We'll keep going back, so I yeah, can't probably too not, much. Not like a lot it's then. still pretty, pheno- it's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> like it's- but do, you think, do you think that you could get a different, um, yeah, di- as you say, different experience and maybe better shots? I'm not saying I've looked at your um, site, Phonographic, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. If you were to... Conquer this fear. That's why I'm doing it. And jump into the water and, and yeah. so that's why you That's why I keep persisting. going. Right. One of the things that happened last year when I got in the water was um, I had the guide who we were with was phenomenal. He was the calmest. His name was Ben. He was the calmest, most – he was Jedi man. Like he was just saying all the right things and um, would pull me by the hand to, you know, to swim with me and stuff. And one of the things that actually made it um, bearable – 
for me was I had my camera and as soon as I was able to put my face in the water with the camera and I was concentrating on the photos and looking at the whales through the camera, yep. I felt much better. But it was getting in the water and putting the face in and all the panic, like what's, you know, what else, is, what's going on here and, and overanalyzing. Yeah. Um, that sucked, man. Yeah. But <laughs> once I focused on the camera, it got easier. So that's what I, I feel like if I continue to keep practising I'm going to be able to get better and better at it. I'll never, ever be comfortable in the water because I have this, like, unhealthy respect for it, I think. <laughs> um, but practice will make it easier, I think. It doesn't stop you in any way. No. You just... Honestly, like, I have had... I've been so fortunate. I've done the most incredible things. Like, I was fun with sea lions in the Galapagos. I've, dwarf minke whales, Great Barrier Reef. All these incredible things. You know, Tonga, which I'm going back to later this year. Um, it just doesn't get any easier. Yeah. But it must be exhausting, that on top of the adrenaline of seeing oh, these amazing mammals. Yeah. Like once you put your face, like you're in and you kind of relax and the mammals, like the animals themselves, like, like I can't actually explain. I just bawl. It's just there are no words to describe how magical it is. Like when I got in last year in Tonga, this huge, like these humpback whales are like the size of a bus, right? And this humpback whale brought over her calf, which is the size of a hatchback, to have a closer look at us. And she came, you can't really see this, but <laughs> <laughs> within arm's length of me, she came that close to me and her pectoral fin is huge. They could just kill you with one little yeah, absent-minded little flick. flick of it. Um, and she basically just raised it really gently in the water over my head so she didn't touch me. And just knowing, like having that kind of, um, interaction, it just it, it blows my mind. Like that's that's what makes me get on a boat. Any ethical concerns there about interacting with the animals, even though they're the ones initiating it? Yeah, I always think about that because, like, what's in it for them, really? <laughs> but one of the things in Australia and in Tonga and, and all over the world is there are very strict rules in place about how close you can get to the wildlife, and all whale interactions are led by the animals. So you get in the water. These are, these animals are huge and they're fast and they're in their own element. If they don't want to know you, they're going to take off. As long as you're respectful and you follow the rules and you know take your cues from them, I don't have a problem with it. And don't ever touch them like that yeah. sort of thing. Like just have a healthy respect. So you face your fears for your, for your passion and it doesn't stop you from, from travelling and experiencing. No way. And we finally cleared up why you think you can't drown. Yeah, there you go. Still keen to put it to the test. Yeah. <laughs> or just have me permanently wear a bag on my head. Yeah, yeah. There's that too. One or the other. Rochelle has her own wildlife-themed podcast, Wild Lives, of which she recommends episode 15 with legendary shark expert Valerie Taylor. We'll share a link in show notes plus her photography site, Fornographic. Now, speaking of podcasts, you've been a guest on another travel podcast, Extra Pack of Peanuts. Yeah, a very popular podcast then. It was great to talk to Trav on that one. Uh, we chatted about travel insurance what it covers, what it doesn't, and what to look for in a policy that fits your needs. And that is out today, same day as ours goes out. So uh, if you're listening to us now, jump on over to Extra Pack of Peanuts if you can, if you haven't got enough of me already. Yeah, well, yeah we want more, <laughs> Phil. Um, all right. Now, Sarah, she's the editor of guideme.malta.com. It's less of a blog. This is a really interesting one. And it's more of a portal and it operates in real time because Sarah and her team are, are Maltese. And it has suggestions for places to stay, things to do, even traffic reports. So it's um, a hybrid platform, so it's not a travel site as such because we don't only target 
people who are traveling to Malta and Maltese islands, we also, um, our readers are also local and expats, so people who live on the island, um, have, have visited the island, looking to come back, anyone that's interested really, so it differs in that way. Small islands, how much is there to discover? Even though it is really small, I think it's like something like 316 square kilometres. Um, there's a lot packed in. So the islands have been actually inhabited for many, many, many years and have had lots of different rulers, each of which left their mark on the place. So there's lots to see in terms of, you know, a histor- from a historical point of view. There are prehistoric ruins and remains um, dating back to different time periods. You'll find several reminders from each period here, and that tends to be very interesting to, well, both locals and tourists, really. It's an island in the Mediterranean, so there's the natural beauty of it as well. Really wide variety of things, even though it is, as you say, really small. <laughs> Being a local then, this statistic blew me away. There are over 329,000 vehicles registered in Malta, which is a huge number considering 425,000 people. Why the fascination then with cars? Um, It's embarrassing, but I think there are several reasons for it, really. It's not just down to any one thing. The first thing I'd say is probably the less than perfect public transport system. There's been talk of introducing different systems over the years, like trains or trams, but none have really gotten off the ground as yet. Apart from that, the Maltese are known to be a little lazy, um, or shall we say laid back as people, so anything too strenuous, such as walking or for a long distance or cycling under the hot summer sun isn't the most attractive prospect. And to be fair to us, with a lack of bicycle lanes and proper infrastructure for cyclists, which is another uh, thing that is being worked on, it sadly isn't really incentivized either. So alternatives to cars by government and the authorities. So cars just become the most convenient option for most, I suppose, for their daily commute. And I work with a guy from whose family is from Malta. He was born there, but he um, lives in Sydney. And he said there's also a fascination with, well, not a fascination, but an enjoyment of eating rabbits. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's one of our um, traditional meals. It's more of an event, really. We call it a fencata, which is a rabbit meal, where the family traditionally gathers and goes together to one of these places, usually in the north of Malta. Back in my parents' um, generation, a lot of Maltese families used to actually breed rabbits at home. Uh, My dad did as well, being an animal lover, but um, he could never bring himself to obviously um, (laughs) kill them for food. But everyone's, I think everyone's, every Maltese person has a family story of a pet bunny called Snowy going missing and then having a lovely rabbit meal and not making the connection until some time later. <laughs> so in closing, small island but packs a punch? I would think so. I mean, as I said, like, I've lived here, well, my entire life really, and there are still areas, there are still places that I enjoy going with my partner. It's a hobby we have where we act as tourists in our own home, so... Obviously, with the site as well, it makes it all the more 
interesting to discover new places and tell people about them. Um, but there is still areas and buildings and histories, so, so many things that I'm still discovering now. So it really does. It really does pack a punch, yeah. Okay, well, that almost brings us to the end of the podcast. But given David earlier on in the episode found our Australian accent so funny, you might like to listen to our podcast episode on Australia. White Cliffs in general is one of those, you know, uniquely Australian places in that just like Cooperpedia in outback South Australia, uh, most of the local residents live underground because of the incredible temperatures that happen all year round, but particularly in summer. So you, you rock up to White Cliffs and drive in and you, you don't really see many people around, but, but people do live there. They're just all underground. I love White Cliffs and its I've lunar landscape. Been. Oh, it's, it's, Need to you've go. got to go. Absolutely. A link to the episode in show notes. Now you can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes. You can download the Google Podcast app. Please subscribe, rate, and share and tell your friends about us. Next week, Scott Wilson, host of the TV show's Departures and Descending. See ya. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.